1: Good
2: afternoon, I hope this finds everyone and all of your loved ones safe and healthy. We come together this afternoon in sadness. We learned late on Friday that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. She was a hero to so many. It's an enormous loss to the court, to law in this country, and to our society. And the law school, it seemed only appropriate that we should gather to remember her, To talk about her legacy. And we must also face the question of what comes next. So I asked several of my colleagues on very short notice if they would be willing to speak this afternoon and offer their perspectives. I will, as I always do, apologize to them. I'm not going to do long biographies. You know who they are. And the key is to spend the time listening to them. Let me just tell you the order in which they'll be speaking And then our goal is we want to leave a lot of time for questions as well. The first speaker will be Professor Amanda Tyler, the Shannon Cecil Turner Professor of Law. She clerked for Justice Ginsburg, and I should also mention that she and Justice Ginsburg had completed work on a book together that was based on what Justice Ginsburg was saying when she was here last year at Berkeley Law. The second speaker will be Catherine Fisk. She's the Barbara Knacktreeb Armstrong Professor of Law. The third speaker will be Orrin Kerr, who is a professor of law here and clerk for Justice Anthony Kennedy. I'm going to speak fourth and offer some remarks, and then we'll hear from Professor Bertral Ross, Chancellor's professor of law. Professor Ian Haney-Lopez was going to join us, an unexpected meeting arose that he had to be part of. He's going to try to join in when he gets here, but if not, he sends his apologies and his regrets. And so it only seems appropriate to start with Professor Tyler. If you were here last year, you got to hear Amanda's brilliant interview of Justice Ginsburg. And we feel so fortunate that Justice Ginsburg was part of the law school in that way. Justice Ginsburg had a special relationship to Berkeley because of her relationship to Herman Hill K., who was a longtime professor and dean at Berkeley Law School. That's why it meant so much to have Justice Ginsburg deliver the inaugural Herman Hill K Memorial Lecture. Amanda, what do you think? was Justice Ginsburg's greatest legacy. What was it like to clerk for her? And if Justice Ginsburg could somehow be here today or have left us some advice, what do you think she would say?
3: Thanks, Erwin. That's a that's a lot of ground to cover in a short time, but I'll I'll try. I actually want to start by talking about her relationship with Herma in this community. Um, to make sure our students know about HERMA. HERMA was one of the justices' oldest and dearest friends. HERMA was the first woman law, uh, woman law dean, female dean of Berkeley Law, and HERMA was the second woman law professor at Berkeley Law. They were dear, dear friends because they joined together to write the very first casebook on gender discrimination, sex-based discrimination, they called it. I want to share with everyone that the justice was so committed to doing the event last year, honoring Herma that she did it over my objections. <laughs> I really was very concerned about her traveling. she was you know, she was fighting cancer and uh, I, I so desperately wanted her to come, but I said, you know justice really, everyone will understand and she it was just so important to her, so important to her to honor Herma, and to honor Herma's legacy here, and just to make sure that we keep telling Herma's story. So I, I appreciate you saying that, Erwin, and giving me the, the nudge to be able to say that at the outset. When you try to think about summarizing her legacy, it is really, really hard to do it in a short amount of time, because her legacy is profound. There is the legacy of her as an advocate, many people have said correctly, uh, that had she never even been on the Supreme Court, we would be talking about her today. Her legacy as an advocate completely changed the face of American society. As recently, as the 1960s, the Supreme Court was upholding laws that excluded women from jury service, saying, you know what, if the state wants to say a woman's place is in the home, that is fine. Enter... Ruth Bader Ginsburg. By the end of the 1970s, the court was routinely striking down, mainly or in many cases that she litigated, laws like that, including jury laws. Uh, She saw Hoyt overturned based on her own work in a follow-on case. Uh, As an advocate, she opened the eyes of the Supreme Court to the lived experiences of both men and women who are held back by gender stereotypes. And because of that, she was able to convince them, to educate them, to teach them as to how gender stereotypes do that, not just to women, but to men as well, and how putting women on a pedestal, as Justice Brennan said, and, and Justice Ginsburg loved this quote, is actually putting them in a cage. It's holding them back. And laws like the jury laws in question, they communicate that women aren't welcome to be civically engaged. Happily, by the end of the 1970s, the entire law, the entire foundation of all of that had had been changed because of Justice Ginsburg's efforts as an advocate. More generally, when you look back at her life and her time on the court, you see the same pervasive work. She had on her wall, in her chambers, in her office and chambers, uh, the passage from Deuteronomy that says, justice, justice, thou shalt pursue That was at the heart of everything that she did. She worked tirelessly every single day of her life to make sure that the Constitution was ever expanding in its inclusiveness, to make sure that uh, people from all walks could count on the Constitution's protections to cloak them. Uh, She talks about this in her great VMI opinion, that this is the story of our constitution. It is an expanding one of inclusivity. And that was something that she made possible both as an advocate and as a justice. And we can talk about so many decisions in that, in that way. Uh, they, they go across many, many fields. What I loved about her legacy or what what I loved about her as a justice, and this was born out of all of her life experiences that she brought to the bench, and also her time as an advocate, she understood that the decisions, excuse me, that the Supreme Court was handing down had very real ramifications for the lived experiences of Americans. And in her opinions, you see a voice, a voice who gave uh, gave an account of how the law impacted the experiences of Americans. You see it in so many of her opinions. Ledbetter, where she chides the majority for not understanding how hard it is to uncover equal pay violations. Chiding the majority for not understanding how a woman in Lily Ledbetter's position uh, working in a factory would be reluctant to complain initially, even if she had suspicions, which it would be hard to do in those circumstances. But complaining in that situation is a perilous thing, she explained. In Shelby County, she walks through the experiences of those trying to uh, exercise their vote in the South. And she points out how the majority doesn't understand how its decision is so at odds with the lived experiences of those who it purports to govern. I could cite many, many, many more examples, but that was one of my very favorite things about her jurisprudence, that it wasn't abstract. It was very real. And she understood the lived experiences of a very broad spectrum of our society, and that influenced all that she did. What was it like to declare for her? It was incredible. I've said, now in print, um, I mean every word. It was one of the greatest honors of my life. She was incredible. She was the kindest, most brilliant, um, most inspiring boss I could have ever asked for. She demanded the best of you. She wouldn't accept anything less, and that was okay because we rose to the occasion, all of us. She made us better in that way, and I am profoundly grateful for the experience, not just because I got to know her, but for all that she taught me. All the, the opportunities she opened up for me then and after, it was an extraordinary privilege. It was also fun to get to know her. She, was, she did have a sense of humor. The, the public didn't see it very much, um, and she was immensely kind. i tried to capture that kindness in my tribute to her out in the Atlantic today. Most of all, though, she was inspiring to us for all the same way she was inspiring to all of you. She was resilient. She was determined. And she was fundamentally, profoundly dedicated to being a public service, being a public servant, excuse me, and to public service more generally. (laughs) She was also very dedicated to making sure that every ounce of her energy was put toward constructive ends. I think that's something we all want to remember. Um, She talked about not letting anger or other things mother taught her this uh, overtake what you do and not to waste time on things that were not constructive but to look to think about how you can you can make the most <laughs> constructive contribution through your work and I think as I was saying to my students earlier today she did more than her fair share on that score what would I say to students what would what would I translate from her life as a lesson for our students. It was really important to Justice Ginsburg that people understand, and not just law students, everyone, that everyone understand that building that more perfect union, a phrase she loved to use from the preamble of the Constitution, wasn't just the work of the justices. It was the work of everyone. When She was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee at her confirmation proceedings. She quoted uh, an, an invoked learned hand, and she said the justices do not guard constitutional rights alone. Courts share that profound responsibility with Congress, the president, the states, and the people. It was really important to her that people work in tandem to try and build that more perfect union. And it was also, as I said a moment ago, it was really important to her that people look for constructive ways to, to take up that work and, and to make those contributions. She also was resilient, as I said. And I hope that resilience inspires our students to do that work and, and to pour their energy into being and becoming the best, I hope all of you will become the best lawyers you can be. I I likened working for her like to being uh, on, a, on a team. I, I chose not my sport, so as to try and reach a more general audience, but to being on a team with Michael Jordan. She brought out the best in everyone around her. Uh, I think the translation here for me would be uh, maybe, maybe being on a team with Megan Rapinoe. Uh, but the justice, uncharacteristically, wants and I think only ever once, used a sports analogy herself. She said, uh, in talking about having to work through all the hardships and adversity and challenges she's faced in the last few years, uh, she said to her dear friend Nina Totenberg, you know, sometimes you have to play a little hurt. And I think what that means is you have to take this lesson from a woman who went on the bench the day after her. Loved husband of 56 years died to hand down a decision that you have to stay the course. You have to pick up the mantle of her work. We all have to pick up the mantle of her work, and we have to move forward carrying on her legacy. And So that's what I think she would say to all of you, particularly
1: to the students. Keep her legacy alive through your work. We all know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a pioneer of the law of sex discrimination and expanding the rights of all to be free from workplace discrimination. We know most that she did so by winning, both as a lawyer and to some extent when she was on the court. But I want to focus on two cases in which she improved the law, even though she lost in the Supreme Court, because her losses inspired (laughs) legislative change. The first case is pregnancy discrimination. As a lawyer for the ACLU Women's Rights Project, Ginsburg challenged pregnancy discrimination as sex discrimination in a case called Strzok versus Secretary of Defense at a time when nobody envisioned pregnancy discrimination as sex discrimination. At least no legal decision makers did. The Air Force had discharged a female officer solely because she was pregnant. And Ginsburg argued that the policy violated equal protection. The Supreme Court did not grant review in the case, and indeed, when the Court did take two pregnancy discrimination cases, it ruled against the female plaintiffs both under the Constitution and under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. But. Ginsburg's arguments were so compelling to so many that in 1978, Congress did what the Supreme Court refused to do and legislatively overruled the Supreme Court in the Title VII area. The second example where Ginsburg won, even though her side did not initially prevail, Amanda has already mentioned, pay discrimination in the 2007 case of Ledbetter versus Goodyear. As Justice Ginsburg explained, Lily Ledbetter was a supervisor at Goodyear for nearly 20 years until her retirement in 1998. For most of those years, she worked as an area manager, a position largely filled by men. Initially, her salary was in line with the men working in similar jobs. But over time, her pay slipped in comparison to that of male area managers with equal or less seniority. And so by the time she neared retirement, she was earning $1,000 less per month than even some of the lowest paid male managers. The Supreme Court majority held that she could not challenge the pay discrimination because Under the court's view, the six-month statute of limitations for filing sex discrimination claims began to run at the date the decision was made to set her pay, and that date was long past by the time she discovered what had happened to her. Justice Ginsburg recognized in her dissent that this was a license to discriminate. As she said, The court's insistence on immediate contest overlooks common characteristics of pay discrimination. Pay disparities often occur, as they did in Ledbetter's case, in small increments. Cause to suspect that discrimination is at work develops only over time. Comparative pay information, moreover, is often hidden from the employee's view. Employers may keep under wraps the pay differentials maintained among supervisors, no less the reasons for those differentials. Small initial discrepancies may not be seen as meat for a federal case, particularly when the employee trying to succeed in a non-traditional environment is averse to making waves. And so for these reasons, legislators recognize that the Supreme Court was wrong in ruling that Title VII prohibited plaintiffs for bringing pay discrimination cases. And the first piece of legislation that President Obama signed after taking office in January of 2009 was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. It amends employment discrimination law, both Title VII and the Equal Pay Act, to allow those affected by pay discrimination to sue when the discriminatory compensation decision is adopted, when an individual becomes subject to it, or when an individual is affected by application of a discriminatory compensation decision or other practice, including each time wages, benefits, or other compensation is paid. That rule, had it been in effect, would have made all the difference for Lily Ledbetter. So while we are mourning Justice Ginsburg's loss, remember what she stood for. She fought hard against personal adversity, and against professional adversity. She never gave up fighting and she lived a long life and a good one. In her spirit, let me quote, close by quoting two famous labor activists, Mother Jones, Martha Jones told a group of miners at their union meeting at a time when it was illegal to form a union and when workers banding together to improve their pay or working conditions were killed with impunity by the companies they worked for. She said, Pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. Everybody remembers the quote, but nobody remembers the stakes that Mother Jones knew and what she was urging them to do, fight like hell at tremendous personal cost and risk. Along the same lines, another famous labor organizer, Joe Hill, who was put to death by the government of Utah for trying to help workers form a union at a time when it was illegal, wrote a he wrote to a fellow union organizer just before he was wrongfully executed for a crime he didn't commit. He said, goodbye, Bill, I die like a true blue rebel. Don't waste any time mourning, organize. I think that's what Justice Ginsburg would want us all to do and to recognize that whatever happens to the Supreme Court without her on it, it does not have the last word. Ordinary people organizing have the last word. Congress, state and local governments have the last word. There is tremendous work for lawyers and law students to do to carry on the work that Ginsburg started. And I am certain that she would want us to fight, no matter how hard it is. Thank you. Uh,
4: thank you all for for uh, inviting me to, to join the group here. It's awfully difficult to go uh, after uh, Professor Tyler and uh, Professor Fisk uh, in honoring Justice Ginsburg, uh, who had such an extraordinary career. Uh, those those two presentations were wonderful, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take a slightly different tack. I'm gonna offer. Um, a, a big picture perspective on her career uh uh first and briefly and then for the rest of my remarks i'm going to go move on to the second part of the um uh, of of what this panel was about the where where what's the future where do we go from from here so let me start just by offering a few thoughts on the career of, of justice ginsburg it's, it's just going to be hard to imagine a supreme court without ruth bader ginsburg i mean such a core member of the Supreme Court for 27 years. Uh, and uh, you know, she was nominated to the Supreme Court after a distinguished career as an advocate and a distinguished career as a judge on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, uh, comes to the Supreme Court and is, is uh, confirmed by the Senate by 96 to 3 votes, un- unimaginable today. Uh, and for her entire career as a justice, was universally respected uh, for her legal talents, for her work ethic, uh, you know, if Justice Ginsburg saw a problem in a case, there was probably a problem in the case. Uh, so, uh, uh, you th- different justices have different, you know, levels of of scrutiny and care and precision and 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 work ethic. And Justice Ginsburg, I think, was just at the top of that uh, throughout throughout her entire remarkable career. Uh, in, in terms of her legacy, I think there are almost. I, I think of this as almost there being three stages to Justice Ginsburg's legacy. The the first is her career as an advocate before she became a judge, which, as Professor Tyler pointed out, was just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, what a what a career as an advocate uh, uh, she, she had. Just just absolutely remarkable. Uh, and then. Uh, I think until the last maybe 10 years of her uh, time on the Supreme Court, I think her she was more considered a lawyer's lawyer. I, when I was a law clerk, which was in 2003 to 2004, I thought of her, I think her perception was more of a, a center left, almost sort of technocrat, like absolutely hardworking, precise, detail-oriented justice, um, uh, uh, but, but an institutionalist justice as, as well. Um, and in the last ten years of her her life, her career on the court, uh, that I think shifted into more of the kind of what maybe we call the notorious R. B. G. Uh, phase, uh, uh, where there was much more of a public perception of her uh, and and um, you know the public attention focused on her as as uh, 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 for her role, uh, which was almost like a third stage. I don't think she, at least my impression, I didn't have any sense. Um, I, that, that there was a change in how she went about her job but the public perception really came forward such that you know i think for many years she was doing great work on the court without being a center of attention and then really became uh, you know a, a a major public figure uh, uh you know one of the most prominent people in the country uh late in her career which was really quite quite remarkable um now i want to talk about a little bit about where things may go next uh i mean we're in a truly extraordinary situation right now. It's, it's 40 days until 40 days or so until the presidential election. Um, president Trump, uh, has committed to, uh, naming a replacement for justice Ginsburg's seat, uh, by the end of the week. Uh, it's a Republican Senate. They're going to try, uh, uh, majority leader Mitch McConnell is going to try as best he can to fill that quickly as possible uh, with a justice who's obviously going to be, you know, quite different uh, on many issues the opposite of Justice Ginsburg. Uh, And I think the real attention is about to shift to the Senate. Are there enough votes? Uh, uh, You know, it's a 53-47 Senate. With 50 votes, the tie goes to Vice President Pence under the Constitution. So it's a question of can you get four defectors from the Republican side to say we are not going to vote to fill the seat until after the election uh, I, my best recollection I was checking the news during this b- beforehand I think there have been uh, two Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski who said they're not going to so are there going to be two more votes uh, uh, on the Senate side um, uh, perhaps Romney perhaps others we don't we don't know um, that's going to be really where I think the attention is going to come. Um, I share the uh, sense that the likely replacement for Justice Ginsburg's position or the, the person likely to be nominated for that seat is likely to be Seventh Circuit Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Um, uh, uh, I think there are a lot of reasons why that's going to be uh, likely to be Trump's pick. Uh, we don't know that. Of course, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but it's, what an absolutely extraordinary situation. Not only is there going to be an enormous partisan brawl over filling the seat in the next 40 days before the uh, election and then after that as well. Uh, But I suspect that this will considerably change the presidential race itself uh, in that the presidential race had been about President Trump's incompetence and uh, maliciousness and complete failure, uh, primarily to deal with coronavirus in addition to many, many other uh, things. And I suspect, you know, a, a a major story, if not the major story going forward for the next 40 days is going to be the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, and, and we'll see what effect this has on the election. We don't know, but it may have a significant one. So uh, the future is, you know, unfortunately going to be one of a very likely, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's it's not going to be a, a, a pretty thing. But um, it, I think, boils down to Senate, Senate positions. Are, are there going to be two more defectors or not? Um, uh, oh, uh, and what's the Senate going to do? ultimately. So um, that's that's likely likely the future. Uh, sorry to mix those two. I realize that's a jarring combination of honoring Justice Ginsburg and then just talking raw politics, but that was what the panel was supposed to be about, so I figured we should talk at least part of that. happy to answer more questions too in the Q&A.
2: My enormous thanks to Amina Tyler, Catherine Fisk, and Oren Kerr for the great remarks, and I look forward to hearing Bertral Ross's remarks. I, too, wanted to speak on the panel and as I wrote to everyone this morning, I think whatever our political views, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a wonderful role model in terms of using the law to bring about social change, how to use the law to make people's lives in our society better. Like the prior speakers, I want to address three questions. First, I want to talk about her legacy as a justice. Second, I want to talk about what are likely to be the effects of her no longer being on the court. And third... I want to talk about what's likely to happen in the nomination and confirmation process. As to the first, I was thinking of the areas where her voice likely made the most difference. We've already touched on some of them just in this program. We've talked about her importance with regard to sex discrimination. I remember when I read her opinion in United States versus Virginia in 1996. This was the case where the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional Virginia Military Institute's exclusion of women. And she wrote the opinion in a 7-1 decision that there's unconstitutional sex discrimination. And there was such a sense that her entire career had brought her to the court to write this important decision about gender equality under the Constitution. I think of her opinions in the area of reproductive freedom. In 2014, in Hobby Lobby versus Burwell, she wrote a stirring dissent that really focused on the importance of access to contraceptives for women in society, for reproductive control and for equality. One of the last dissents that she wrote just in June was in Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania where again, she stressed the importance accessibility to contraceptives. She also was an important voice on the court in terms of separation of church and state. She believed that there should be a wall that separates church and state. In the words of an earlier court of wall, it's high and impregnable. She believed that there shouldn't be religious symbols on government property. She believed that the government shouldn't be giving aid to parochial schools. She believed that the place for prayer is in the home, in churches, synagogues, mosques, not at government meetings. Now, as I thought about these areas where her voice was so important, I realized that, it has to be remembered, she was the second woman to ever serve on the Supreme Court, the sixth Jewish justice ever to serve on the Supreme Court, how much her sex and her religion shaped her views. And maybe this is a reminder that for any judge or justice, who they are and what they've experienced will inevitably influence what they do when they're on the bench. And it certainly led to Justice Ginsburg's powerful voice in these areas. Well, second, what about the effects of her no longer being on the court? I wanna talk about the effects short term and then longer term. In the short term, the current court has four very conservative justices, and those are justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. It had John Roberts, who's to be sure right of center, but more of a moderate conservative. Last term, there were four justices who were left of center, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sinner, and Kagan. There were some very important decisions last term where John Roberts joined together with Ginsburg, Bryerson, and Kagan to create the majority in 5-4 rulings. For instance, in the Department of Homeland Security versus University of California, the Supreme Court 5-4 said that President Trump violated the Administrative Procedures Act in rescinding the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival program. It was Roberts and the four liberals who were doing that or in an important abortion case, June Medical Services versus G. These five justices said the Louisiana law was unconstitutional in requiring that doctors have an admitting privilege at hospitals in 30 miles in order to perform an abortion. Last term, John Roberts was the swing justice on the court. He was the median justice ideologically. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg is replaced, by I say, as Professor Kerr suggested, Amy Coney Barrett, there will be five justices substantially to the right of John Roberts. They would be Thomas Alito Gorsuch Kavanaugh in the new nominee. No longer would John Roberts be the swing justice. No longer would be the possibility that Roberts might join with the liberal justices to create a majority. To take an example with regard to abortion, I've always thought that Roberts would generally vote to uphold restrictions on abortion but Knight might be willing to overrule Roe v. Wade. I have no doubt, none, that Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, and with Amy Coney Barrett, her, will be five votes to overrule Roe. And I think they would want to do it soon, while they know they have the five votes. This has been part of the conservative agenda for a long time. I don't want to overstate the short-term effect. Last term on the Supreme Court, there were 14 5-4 decisions. In 10 of them, the majority was Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And just two of them was the majority, Roberts, Ginsburg, Bryerson, and Kagan. Justice Ginsburg was much more in dissent than in the majority on the Roberts court. But I do think shifting the ideological median on the court, the center, the swing justice from Roberts to somebody much more conservative is going to really matter in the short term. Then what about the long term? Amy Coney Barrett is 48 years old. Barbara Logia, who's been mentioned a good deal, is 52 years old. My former student, Allison Jones Rushing is 39 years old. If any of these women are confirmed, it's gonna mean this seat is in the hands of a conservative for decades to come. After all, John Paul Stevens resigned at age 90. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at age 87. And as we think about the longer term with regard to the Supreme Court, what will it mean with regard to the process, with regard to the legitimacy of the court? What occurred in 2016 with the nomination of Chief Judge Merrick Garland was unprecedented in American history. Prior to 2016, 24 times in American history, there had been a vacancy to the last year of a president's term. In 21 of 24, the Senate confirmed And three, the Senate denied confirmation. Never before had the Senate said no hearings, no vote in an election year. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said in an election year, it should be for the people to decide who's going to pick the next Supreme Court justice and refused to even hold hearings on Chief Judge Garland. We've already heard Senate Majority Leader McConnell say they're going to get a vote and they're going to try to do it before Election Day or maybe in the Lame duck accession of Congress that it should be for the president to fill the vacancy. The hypocrisy of this is stunning. What will it mean for the legitimacy of the court if somebody is rushed through? will it mean for the legitimacy of the court in light of how Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed just a couple years ago? None of us can know the long-term consequences for the Supreme Court, but we need to have them in mind. Well, third, what about this confirmation process? I think that Professor Kerr described it well. It's 53-47 in the United States Supreme Court with Republicans in the majority. If it's a tie, the the vice president breaks the tie. So it would take four Republican senators saying, they don't believe that President Trump should be the one to fill this vacancy. That we should wait until after January 20th, whoever's inaugurated then should be able to fill the vacancy. Will there be four Republican senators willing to stand up to the enormous pressure on this? This was pointed out. Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins have said they don't believe that this should be filled at least before the election. But can we imagine two other Republican senators being able to do this? And what then happens if the Republicans push through the replacement for Justice Ginsburg and push through somebody who's very conservative? Now, I actually am going to slightly disagree with Orrin Kerr. I think Amy Coney Barrett is likely, but if I were to give my prediction, and predictions are free and worth it across, cost, I think 11th Circuit Judge Barbara Lagoa is the most likely to be picked. She's Latina. She'd be the second Latina to serve on the Supreme Court. She's Cuban-American. She has a compelling life story. She's from Florida, a swing state. She would, I think, appeal to Latinx voters, And what President Trump has most in mind is what will help him most in the election. But we'll learn on Thursday or Friday whether it's one of these women or somebody else. I think that if the Republicans push through confirmation of one of these individuals, and if Joe Biden wins on November 3rd, and if the Democrats take the Senate, then I think the Democrats in 2021 should and will increase the size of the Supreme Court. The size of the Supreme Court is not set by the Constitution. It's set by statute. It's ranged over the course of American history from five to ten. Hard for us to imagine there was a time when they chose to have ten justices in even number. Nine is a historic accident. It's because in the late 1860s, Congress didn't want unpopular President Andrew Johnson to fill a seat on the Supreme Court. I think the Democrats will say it's the Republicans who pack the court and what they did in 2016 and 2020, increasing the size of the Supreme Court is simply meant to offset that, to restore the stolen seats. I don't underestimate the divisiveness of this at a very divided time. I don't deny that if the Democrats do this, then in 2024, or 2028, or 2032, as the Republicans take the White House and Congress, they could again increase the size of the court. But I also believe that the Democrats can't sit by and do nothing What we're talking about is the court for decades to come. What we're talking about here is the most precious rights of individuals, rights that affect all of us in the most intimate and important aspects of our lives. I very much believe what some have already said in this program, that if Justice Ginsburg were here and could speak to us, or if she left us final words, she would say, we have to fight on and fight harder and better than ever before. And that's why i think the democrats would have to do this should the republicans push somebody through now and i'll turn it over to bertrol
0: thank you Irwin. ruth bader ginsburg lived an incredible life as a pioneer justice and equality advocate role model and long-term servant of the public there's not much more than i can add to the many tributes and accounts of her legacy described here today published in newspapers and shared in media outlets throughout the weekend Perhaps the most poignant tributes came from her immediate colleagues on the court. Chief Justice Roberts described her as a tireless and resolute champion of justice. For Clarence Thomas, she was the essence of grace, civility, and dignity. For Justice Stephen Breyer, she was a great justice, a woman of valor, and a rock of righteousness. Justice Samuel Alito, in accordance with the views of countless others, noted that she has been and will continue to be an inspiration for many. Justice Sotomayor referred to her dear friend as an American hero and a pathbreaking champion of women. Justice Elena Kagan described Ginsburg as an attorney who led the fight to grant women equal rights under the law and a judge who worked to ensure that this country's legal system lives up to its ideals by extending its rights and protection to those once excluded. Justice Neil Gorsuch noted Justice Ginsburg's many sacrifices to her country in the honor of her performance. And finally, Justice Brett Kavanaugh said of her, that no American has ever done more than Justice Ginsburg to ensure equal justice under law for women. Justice Ginsburg deserves every tribute that she has received and more, and we have been very fortunate to have her as part of our country and our society as long as we did. For many, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an icon, a feminist icon, a justice icon, an equality icon, and I agree that such veneration is much deserved. What worried me towards the end of her life and career was the blurring of lines between her icon status based on what she had done, what she had done, and icon status that seemed to be assigned, seemed to be assigned to her based on who she was, a justice of the Supreme Court. Justice Ginsburg was not alone, as we saw this level of veneration for Justice Antonin Scalia at the end of his life as well, the justice as rock star or superhero. Why it worried me with both Justices Ginsburg and Scalia was because the veneration of justices can distort our understanding of the role and status of justices, as well as our understanding of the role and status of the Supreme Court in our society. And justices, it is important to remind ourselves, are servants of the people. And the Supreme Court, as it is equally important to remind ourselves, our institutions delegated authority to serve the people. Why does this matter? Because public veneration of the particulars of an institution can lead to hubris, from that institution based on misunderstandings of its institutional role. When I say that the Supreme Court is an institution-delegated authority to serve the people, I do not mean that it is an institution that must follow majoritarian preferences. In fact, the people delegated to the Supreme Court the authority to exercise power contrary to the majoritarian preferences of the moment, insofar as such preferences contradict the supermajoritarian principles of the people. These supermajoritarian principles contained in the Constitution and our evolving understanding of that document. But the Supreme Court does not have the authority to exercise power contrary to majoritarian preferences simply to advance their own or their particular ideological group's vision of what should be. It is often difficult for people to distinguish between the Constitution's supermajoritarian principles and the ideological views of justices, as judicial hubris derived in part from justice veneration by the people can make the people start to think that what the justices say must reflect our supermajoritarian principles, even when they do not. I therefore think it is important as we move forward and think about our court in the future that we start to make more clear distinctions between the persons and the office. Ruth Bader Ginsburg should be venerated for the incredible life she led and the causes that she contributed to. She made our society more just and equal. But Justice Ginsburg should not be venerated, but rather appreciated and even celebrated for the dignity and integrity with which she served the people. And as a people, we should demand from all justices such similar levels of service. As we look ahead, I'm pessimistic about the capacity of members of the court to see beyond their ideological views towards a more unbiased account of what our Constitution demands in the moments of crisis that we are in and that will face our country in the future. That pessimism is grounded in the fact that it's really hard for any human being to subordinate their subjective values, and for the most part in our history, justices, justices have not been successful at doing so. I don't want to spread the illusion any further that justices are umpires merely calling balls and strikes. But what justices can do is consider their competence and capacity to be arbiters of the difficult challenges we currently face as a society and will face as a society in the future. These include the potential crisis right in front of us, the presidential election in November. Also, the more deep-seated crises of racial justice manifest in the century of state violence that police cameras and iPhones have recently made visible again. Persistent inequalities on the basis of other statuses, gender, class, and sexuality, among many others, that Justice Ginsburg fought to advance, and the existential threat to our republic and our world and our earth represented by climate change. The role of the court is certainly not to construct policy on these issues. They have not been assigned the that authority to legislate or execute the laws. But with their decisions and understanding of role, they can be facilitators rather than impeders for democratic resolutions of these extraordinary challenges. If the court decides otherwise, if the court decides to return to its role in the 1930s as an impediment to democratic resolution of crises, it could see a standing fall. And with the fall of the court will be the fall of the republic as we know it. I ultimately think that judicial understanding of its role is all we can rely on right now. But like many of you, I have little faith that justices will be able to constrain themselves. I feel confident that Donald Trump will nominate and the Senate will confirm a new justice before any change in leadership. And this new justice will be very conservative and result in the establishment of a strongly conservative five-person majority on the court, with the sixth justice, Chief Justice Roberts, having much stronger allegiance to the majority than to the more liberal minority. This highly conservative court will be out of touch with the more moderate views of the public, And this discordance is only likely to grow over time. But I see that much discussed response of packing the court that Erwin has described as only quickening the demise of the institution, as there would be no clear endpoint to a constant tit for tat of court packing. Instead, I think sustainable reform of the court to ensure that it is an institution connected to the people and the public will be through a constitutional amendment establishing term limits. You might say, and I completely agree, that it's really hard to amend the constitution. But I think that hard work will be necessary to save the court and the Republic as we know it.
2: Thank you, Bertral. Thanks to each of the speakers, for the wonderful presentations. We have questions. I'm gonna access the questions now um, and I'll just read them in the order as they came up. Collins Murkowski have both said they won't vote on a nomination before the election. Do you think they're phrasing it this way? To leave open the possibility they will vote before the inauguration. or and maybe turn to you since you discussed this the most.
4: Sure. Uh, I, I read what they said as, as saying that whoever is elected president on November 3rd uh, should be able to make that nomination. So I think that holds open the possibility for uh, if Trump wins re-election, then, they're, then the, they could move forward on, the, on a vote on the nomination. Uh, but if Biden wins, then he would have an opportunity to nominate somebody for that spot. And the, the seat would not be filled in the lame duck period. At least at least that's what I think uh, they, they they both said. But I'd have to go back and check the exact language.
2: Does anyone else want to speak to that question? The next question that I got, with a replacement under the Trump administration seeming increasingly likely, Democrats may feel pressured to respond with either packing the court or weakening the power of the court. Can you elaborate on these options and what they might look like? Do you think either of these are likely to happen? Does anyone want to speak towards that?
0: I think, Erwin, since you introduced it, you'd be best to start us off.
2: A week ago Saturday, I participated at a conference by Zoom at William and Mary Law School. and I was on a panel and it was discussing various possible reforms for the Supreme Court. One was what Bertral talked about in terms of term limits, which I favor. Another was about changing the court in terms of a five-five-five split, like some professors like Dan Epps have argued for, and t- also discussed was the possibility of increasing the size of the court. And the moderator of this panel, Bob Barnes, who writes for the Washington Post, asked if any of the panelists thought that there'd be an increase in the size of the court. And I spoke up and I said, if God forbid something were to happen to say Justice Ginsburg between now and the election, and the Republicans were to push somebody through I think the Democrats would then respond in 2021 if Biden wins in the Democratic Senate by increasing the size of the Supreme Court. Obviously, it's controversial, and Bertrall has talked about some of the downside, but I think the Democrats would feel they have to do something in light of these two stolen seats. In terms of restricting the Supreme Court, those who are in federal courts this semester or those who had Amanda Tyler or Willie Fletcher federal courts know that there is a clause in Article 3, Section 2, that says the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction with such exceptions and regulations as Congress shall make. There have been proposals throughout American history for Congress to use this to deprive the court of the ability to hear particular kinds of cases, such as challenges to abortion laws or school prayer laws or laws that um, require under God and the Pledge of Allegiance. But none of these bills have ever gotten adopted. Is it possible that a Democratic Congress with a Democratic president might try to restrict Supreme Court jurisdiction? Certainly, but there's the same downside that Patrall talks about. Once that Pandora's box is open, it can then be used in the future by Republican Congress and Republican President. That's why I think the more likely course and the course that's most likely to get where we want to with regard to the Supreme Court and the Constitution, would be expanding the size of the court.
4: Erwin, could I offer a response to that? Of course. So, I, I share Professor Ross's view that uh, the answer here is term limits and not uh, changing the size of the Supreme Court. And let me explain a little bit about why. Um, in 2013, 2014, there was a major public debate over whether uh, Justice Ginsburg should resign. Uh, she would have been, no- uh, a replacement would have been nominated by uh, President Obama, and there was a Democratic Senate. Uh, And so the argument made perhaps most prominently by our very own Dean Chemerinsky uh, was that Justice Ginsburg, you have to resign because here's what might happen. There might be a Republican president who's nominated and they would put a Republican on the court to replace you. Justice Ginsburg uh, rebuffed those arguments and uh, seemed quite confident that a a Democratic president would be elected in 2016. Uh, And so she 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 made a choice. Um, to stay on the court rather than step down and be replaced by a, a, an Obama nominee. And if she had lived a few more months, she uh, very, at least the polls suggest, likely would have been replaced by an- another Democratic nominee uh, 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 under, under, hopefully, <laughs> President Biden. Um, and if that happens, it seems to me that the, the rule would be, it seems awkward to me to call it a stolen seat, given that it was predicted that this was a possibility and that Justice Ginsburg herself made that choice. And so if, if it's illegitimate to... Repli- and and I'm, I, I should say that I hope there are sufficient votes to hold this over for the next election. I think it is deeply problematic to try to push somebody through in such a short period of time. But I also have a hard time thinking that it's illegitimate to try to do so, given that that was what was predicted by you, uh, Gene Chemerinsky and others, um, as a problem in, in 2014, and I, I think this does go back to echo Professor Ross to the problem that there should be Supreme Court term limits. It's it's in, in, in exceedingly odd that we have a system where the future of the Supreme Court uh, and the direction of U.S. politics more broadly is is contingent on on how long a per, one individual um, uh, 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 stays able to remain on the Supreme Court. I think that's just it's it's just a a, a I think it's a system that's hard to defend and should be changed.
2: May I go to the next question or does somebody else want to speak? The next question, I feel like there's a lot out there about Justice Ginsburg's work, advocacy, opinions, during her time at the ACLU and on the Supreme Court. I'd love to hear more about her time on the D.C. Circuit.
3: Go ahead, Amanda. You know people remember that she wrote the decision in Chevron that, um, sorry, I have my support animal at my feet and he's being a little loud, shaking his tail, um, that she wrote she wrote uh, the Chevron decision that the court overturned. So for all of you, and I hope this is a lot of you who have or are studying administrative law, um, she actually came out the other direction of that one. So that was one of her biggest decisions there. It's interesting, um, if you look at broad arch of her decisions, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that comes to the DC circuit is regulatory in nature, administrative law cases like Chevron. And so what one finds when one tracks, for example, how often she voted with Justice Scalia and Robert Bork, Judge Robert Bork, it's over 90%. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's a reflection of the nature of the jurisdiction of that circuit. Um, It doesn't actually tell you a lot, as we can see by comparing how often she and Justice Scalia voted together on the Supreme Court. It doesn't tell you a lot about her particular disposition when she was there. But I think that feeded into the narrative, which many people don't remember. And, of course, many of our students might not have even been alive when she was nominated. But there was some pushback. Uh, People thought she was too moderate. And um, that was mainly a result of a speech that she'd given about Roe versus Wade. But I think some people also looked at her work on the D.C. Circuit and didn't see enough indications of what they hoped to see in terms of a justice who would stake out the positions that she ultimately did come to, to stake out as a justice. Does anyone else want to speak
2: about her role on the D.C. Circuit? The next question that I got was, if Republicans are able to confirm a justice before a new president is inaugurated, is there any legal rec- recourse? any potential challenge of the lydia of the nomination and confirmation in court given the precedent set by the Republicans themselves, or is packing the court the most likely recourse if Republicans confirm a new justice before November?
3: I mean I could, I could speak to this, but Irwin, yeah. you of course could too. Um, no, there's no, there's no recourse. You can't go into court and challenge. That, um, you know, my students asked me this earlier this morning in civil procedure in federal courts, Erwin and I teach and Judge Fletcher teaches uh, that uh, there are these things called political questions. I, I, I don't like that framing of the, the, the doctrine, but the idea is where uh, Congress and or the, the executive have unlimited discretion with respect to certain powers There's nothing for the courts to enforce. And that's the situation here. The president has the power to nominate and the Senate has the power to confirm.
2: I agree with that answer. Let me just add one interesting wrinkle that we haven't talked about yet. And I haven't seen this written about yet. If you look at Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution, it says, each house shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members. And a majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business. The vice president doesn't count in making that quorum. What if, for example, there were, say, three but not four Republican senators, and they simply don't attend along with the Democratic senators not attending, and say that, therefore, there's not a quorum? I don't know how all that would play out. In any challenge, I agree with Professor Tyler. It would be a political question. But I'm trying to think about, is there anything to be done? Because ultimately, my conclusion is the same as hers. If the president nominates and a majority of the senators confirm that person's on the Supreme Court for life.
0: And, and that, that that may be a possibility. I just, given what I've seen over the last nearly four years, I'm not sure that there are enough Republican senators with that degree of courage to, to stand with Democrats and denying Republican the Republican Senate a quorum. Um, I hear what Murkowski and Collins said, and, um, and it's a nice principle position. But principled positions have been made on prior issues that um, have been walked back. And I fear that this could be another situation in which those principled stands at the beginning are walked back later under the guise of some explanation that doesn't hold much water. But that's kind of my cynicism about um, Republican independence in, amongst Congress members.
2: Others who want to speak in response to that question? The next question is, do you think it would be less likely for a Democratic Senate and White House to add seats to the court in the unlikely event that one of the conservative justices, such as Justice Thomas, happened to retire shortly after after the Democrats took the White House?
1: Catherine? You know, the one thing I can say about all of this is I think what's going to happen is a function of how much political pushback the Supreme Court feels that they face if, for example, if Trump and the Senate push through a a nominee, you know, Lindsey Graham said people should hold him to account when he said that he was supporting the effort to block the Merrick Garland nomination and not even to have a hearing. He said, and if it happens in the future, I will take the same position. And of course, as Bertrand pointed out, he walked that back. What will persuade them not to act is if they think there is going to be huge political pushback to Republicans, political pushback to President Trump's re-election campaign, and for the justices themselves, Why did John Roberts, having been a rock-solid conservative for his career, suddenly become the swing vote in a couple of high-profile cases? I think because he was worried about the institutional credibility of the Supreme Court. So they can put some ultra-right-winger on the court, any of the people that have been named who, for example, have views that it ought to be permissible to prohibit the use of contraception or things like that. But in the end, they have the people Hold them to account. The reason why the Supreme Court changed its position in 1937 after having declared fundamental aspects of the New Deal unconstitutional is because there were hundreds of thousands of people in the street, because the state of Michigan was in a state of near civil unrest, and Frank Murphy, then the governor, um, was worried about calling out the National Guard for fear that thousands and thousands and thousands. Of people would be shot in the streets. That's the thing that's going to make either the Trump administration or the Republican Party, or for that matter, the Supreme Court, think more carefully. As to, for example, jurisdiction stripping, which we talked about earlier, you know, the reason why the Norris LaGuardia Act of 1932 stripped federal courts of the jurisdiction to issue injunctions in labor disputes was not because of some principled concern about, you know, gee, we ought to allow people to strike. That was part of it. But part of it was at the time, United States companies were spending more money on munitions to use against their employees than the United States Army was that level of anxiety, and the munitions were being used in part to enforce federal court injunctions. That level of unrest winds up being a problem for elected leaders and a huge problem for the Supreme Court. In the end, that's why I cited Mother Jones and Joe Hill. I'm afraid that's the best remedy.
2: I think we have time for one more question and this seemed an appropriate one to finish and it's directed to you, Amanda. What was your favorite case to work on with the justice during your time as a clerk, if you feel comfortable answering that question? Mm -hmm. And additionally, your Atlantic article, which, by the way, I commend to everyone. It's just beautiful. Mentioned a lot of your favorite memories with her as a mentor friend. Could you tell us another specifically in working with her on the book together over the course of the last year?
3: So my favorite memory as a law clerk, uh, substantively, (coughs) which was the question about Working on a case with her. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I'm not necessarily comfortable naming specific cases in which I worked with her. We're not supposed to disclose that, uh, although some people do. Um, I choose to be a stickler uh, for that confidentiality pledge I took. Uh, but I do remember one case, and it was um, it, it was a case in which. I knew the court would be close. I had drawn the case. We divided up the cases in the chambers at the start of each argument session. And I went after this case because it was a it was a case that involved really important federal courts slash civil procedure type institutional separation of powers questions. Um, but really um, not a headline grabbing case, but a really important case. that was the kind of thing that a real law nerd like her and if I can put myself once in the same category as her, me, uh, would really enjoy. And so I went after it. And as I got into it and worked on my bench memo, I realized that I was probably going to disagree with her. So I wrote a very long bench memo to her, staking out a recommendation with which I expected she would disagree. But I decided to make the case as best I could. And she would go through the cases one at a time and preparing for each week. And often that happened over the weekend. So she called me over the weekend because she was working on that particular case and she'd just read my bench memo. And we were on the phone for two hours. <laughs> I remember, uh, just going back and forth, just having the most incredible, rich intellectual debate about what the court should do in this case. And I was so flattered that she wanted to hash it out with me. Um But I, I mean, I didn't convince her, of course, and she was the justice. And uh, I realized I wasn't going to convince her, but I was having so much fun. I mean, to get to spar intellectually with Ruth Bader Ginsburg about a shared devotion and love for, you know, procedure and federal courts and issues that don't always grab the headlines, but are so important and so interesting. It was just a joy. But after about two hours, I started to get tired and I decided I better just say, okay, justice, you're right, I'm wrong. And, and as soon as I did that, she said, "Okay, all right. I'll see you at work tomorrow." <laughs> so that's a treasured memory of uh, my time as a clerk. Uh, she and I have been working on a project that uh, is is built around the conversation that we had last fall here at UC Berkeley, uh, which is printed as part of the of the book project, um, and and it collects. Uh, Various contributions, primarily from her, um, but some from me as well, and some that we did together, uh, that sort of trace the arc of her career. And um, and then also she's chosen her favorite opinions, and we are including those. They're the ones of which she was most proud, and bench statements to go with those opinions that she wrote. um, And various other materials, including materials that speeches that haven't been published that I think are really personal and give you a really good sense of who she was as a person. And um, there's one in particular that's at the end of the book, and she talks there about what I spoke about in my opening remarks. She talks very poignantly um, and beautifully about how important it is that all of us, um, (coughs) excuse me, take up the work of building that more perfect union. Um, she talks about how it is our sacred bond that ties us together as Americans and um, it's it's work that all of us have to do. And so I, I was very happy to be asked about that and to get to say that. I assume my last words here, that's what she would have wanted all of us to do now.
2: Such a perfect way to end this program. I know we ended up spending a lot of time talking about what her departure from the court's gonna mean for constitutional law. So a lot of time talking as we must about the confirmation fight that is likely to come. But ultimately I hope we can also take time, especially now and remember her and to celebrate her life and to constantly keep in mind how much she really was a role model for all of us in law, but what each of us can do to make a difference and how much through law we can change society and make it better. I want so much to thank each of my colleagues for being part of the panel. and Thank all of you for watching.
0: You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.